Church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, it is a brief psalm. You may miss it, uh, but find it there towards the middle of your Bible. Only three verses here. Uh, As you find your place, I want to answer publicly two questions that I've already been asked multiple times this morning. The first one is, why are we in Psalms? We still have some verses in Mark to consider. Um, Yes, uh, we left off last week at verse 8 of Mark 16, and in your Bibles uh, contain Mark 16, 9 through 20. You probably notice in your Bibles, as you've read through the Gospel of Mark, that those verses stand as unique, and I will explain their uniqueness tonight. Today happens to be the third Sunday of the month, which means that we will gather not only this morning for corporate worship, but we will gather again tonight for corporate worship. At 6 o'clock, we will come together for our third Sunday night service, and I will conclude our series in the Gospel of Mark, the 36th sermon in that Uh, sermon series will be tonight at six o'clock. So to hear the end of that series, you need to come back to church tonight as we will gather together to pray together, to worship the Lord together, to hear from some of our ministries and what is happening in the life of our church, and for me to conclude our series in the gospel of Mark. I will explain why those, it is going to be a unique sermon because I'm going to have to explain what those verses are, why they stand as unique, Uh, And so we felt like it would fit better on a Sunday night than it would on a Sunday morning. And we often use the Psalms as breaks for us in between series, which is why having now finished the gospel, the series in Mark, at least on Sunday morning, and moving into a new series next week, uh, we will be in a Psalm. So that's the answer to the first question, which leads me to the Second question, and that I got several times this morning, which means maybe we didn't explain this all that great. Pastor, why are you here? Um, I'm, I'm here because I was always scheduled to be here through next week. Easter was not the beginning of my sabbatical. Next week is. So next week begins our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We will have 10 weeks walking through Ecclesiastes, all with different preachers. So 10 different preachers from our partners with the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC of Virginia, the Pillar Network, and uh, Redemption Heights Church in Philadelphia. We will have a different preacher every week while I am out on sabbatical. I will be here next Sunday morning. I am leaving with our team for Rwanda next Sunday immediately after the sermon, but I will be here in church with you next Sunday morning, worshiping alongside of you, and Dr. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, who literally wrote the book, not the book of Ecclesiastes, but wrote a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. Danny's not that old. Um, uh, He will be here with you, and as a gift to you, the church, next week, we're going to have copies of his commentary on Ecclesiastes to give to each of the families in our church as a gift to you. So if you will be here next week, uh, your family will receive a gift from the church that you can study along in the series of Ecclesiastes, and I can promise you, you will be blessed by Dr. Aiken preaching, beginning that series for us next Sunday morning. I'll talk a little bit more about the sabbatical tonight, and then we will be praying for that next Sunday as we gather. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we read from God's word in the 131st Psalm, these three short verses 
a song of David, which was used by the Old Testament people of God on the ascent towards Jerusalem. David writes, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child in my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Nansman River Baptist Church. We thank you, God, for this place but more importantly, for its people, our family. What encouragement we receive when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, when we are led in scripture reading and prayer and the exposition of your word by our elders, when we encourage one another, exhorting and admonishing in the truth of God's word. God, would you continue to bless this faith family, we pray. As we turn now to your word and its challenge to us to calm and quiet our souls, to find rest. May you help us because our flesh fights against it. We thank you for Jesus who is our rest. May we look to him, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I thought it was appropriate for my last Sunday morning sermon for the next 12 weeks. The next time I am preaching here on a Sunday morning will be July the 16th, Lord willing. And I can promise you, um, I will be anticipating it and it will be long. Um, some of you, like they're all long, it's okay. I thought it would be helpful, not only for you, but for me. This was a helpful sermon for me to prepare as I head into an extended time of rest. For those of you that may be visiting with us, you think, what has he been talking about these last few minutes? Um, I, our elders and our church have been gracious to uh, extend towards me a time of rest, uh, a, what we call a sabbatical where I will be away, I'll do some traveling with my family, I'm going to visit some other churches, I'm going to be able to just take some extended time away from being the lead pastor of our church and the primary preacher of our church uh, to renew and rejuvenate my own soul. And I thought that as we lead into that time, it would be a good opportunity for me to uh, preach a psalm that encourages all of us to find that kind of rest and not to find it in a vacation and not even to find it in a day like the Sabbath in the Old Testament or the Lord's Day in the New Testament, but to actually find it in Jesus. One of my favorite television shows is the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> that may be the best response I'm going to get all day, but it's okay. Some of you love the Andy Griffith show. My family hates it. They hate it. 
because they didn't, my, my wife didn't grow up watching it, I don't think. My children, just dad's watching black and white TV. I don't know that they can fi- fully get over that. But I grew up watching the Andy Griffith Show with my parents. And uh, on Saturday mornings when it's not football season, it will often be on in our house because TV Land will just rerun it. And they only rerun the black and white episodes mainly, which are the only good ones. Once it went into color, it stopped being good because Barney wasn't on it anymore. And there's, as I was preparing the sermon this week, I, I was uh, reminded of an Andy Griffith episode where a guest preacher, we're about to have some guest preachers, a guest preacher, Dr. Green, comes to preach at All Souls Church, which I think was the only church in Mayberry. And Dr. Green comes from New York, as if that gave him some kind of clout, right, in Mayberry. They were all impressed. And his sermon was entitled, What's Your Hurry? And I watched the clip of it this week. It was a four minute, I think the whole sermon was four minutes long. I'm not sure. The man never, man did not bring his Bible into the pulpit. He never read any scripture. It was not a sermon. It was a talk. This was in the early 1960s, okay? It It was a talk on what does it mean to slow down and to relax, And instead of looking at Scripture, it was a terrible sermon. Instead of looking at Scripture, that it does encourage us to find rest in one very specific place, Dr. Green encouraged the congregation there in fictional Mayberry to find rest in the old ways. Band concerts out on the lawn. And that's what the rest of the... the, the rest of the show was about was them trying to hurriedly put together a band concert and wearing themselves out. But one of my favorite parts, probably the best part of that episode is after the sermon, they're greeting Dr. Green outside and Barney, who slept through the sermon, don't do that. Barney, who slept through the sermon, comes up to him and says, yeah, it was a great sermon, something like you can never hear enough on the subject of sin. Barney thought that's what he preached on. I thought, well, that's good. At least TV's mentioning sin. Here's what I want to say. Here's why the whole reason I bring this up to you. When we fail to find rest, Barney's right. It is actually sin for us to fail to find rest in an appropriate place. When we won't quiet our minds and quiet our souls and find rest in a very specific person and place, then it is disobedience to the word of God. We are instructed and demonstrated time and again, rest. Where? In Christ. The main idea of our sermon today is that in Christ, we find rest for our weary soul. You may say, I, I, don't, I don't need to rest. I'm a high capacity, high bandwidth person. I can go seven days a week, 14, 16 hours a day. Listen to me. I, I'm not just talking about rest for your body. I worded this specifically this morning, that it's, it's rest for a weary soul. Your soul, that, that inside part of you, gets tired They got tired of the 1960s. The pastor was right to at least preach on the subject. He did a bad job of it. And it gets tired today. It has always gotten tired. It got tired in David's day, a millennia before the Lord came. 
And so we should look to Christ and find rest. So I promise you, whether you are tired this morning physically, your soul is weary if it's not resting in Jesus. And that's through these three short verses what I want us to find this morning. The first is that humility is necessary for finding true rest. Humility is necessary for finding true rest. The psalmist for us makes three denials in verse 1. Crying out to the Lord, he says, My heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, and I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, while this is phrased in the negative, where the psalmist is expressing what he does not do, we need to recognize that this is poetry, and it's written in such a way that we're supposed to emulate the psalmist. That we should be able to, as the people of God, as those who are relying on the Lord and finding our rest in Jesus, we should be able to agree with these three statements. So we need to ask, what are these three denials. The first, when he says, my heart is not lifted up, he's talking about pride. Now, all three of these are connected, but I'm going to use three different words to describe three unique things. And the first one is pride. Here I'm defining pride as thinking of oneself more highly than one should. So why he says, my heart is not lifted up. That this is about your own understanding of yourself. That pride is, you could say it like this, self-esteem run amok. Self-esteem's not a bad thing, right? It's, it's not a bad thing to recognize that, that you have intrinsic value because God created you in his image. That you have intrinsic value because the Lord loves you. That you have intrinsic value because Jesus died for you. So a right understanding, a biblical understanding of of humanity, of personhood, does lead us to value ourselves, to find esteem in ourselves. But pride takes that self-esteem, and this is what the flesh and the world does to us, that it doesn't find its worth in, in the imago Dei, in the image of God, or in the love of God, or in the death of Christ in our place. It finds its worth in the flesh itself. And then that self-esteem takes over, that pride takes over and causes us to think about ourselves more highly than we should, not finding our worth in Christ and his view of us, but finding our worth simply in ourselves. This is why the word pride has been co-opted in our culture. It is a direct denial of what God says is true and an embracing of self and self-expression and self-evaluation and even self-definition that I find pride in who I say that I am, not in who God says that I am. Pride is, again, one of the opposites of humility, which is necessary for finding rest. The second denial is my eyes are not raised too high. Related to pride is a word that we do not often use, but the Bible uses, and that is the word haughtiness. Haughtiness is an attitude of superiority and even contempt for people one believes to be inferior. 
So he moves from the heart to the eyes. It's that which you're seeing outside of yourself. It's the, the old phrase, looking down your nose. When you look down your nose, it's because you've elevated your eyes and you're looking down your nose at other people. Writing in the Proverbs, we read in Proverbs 21, haughty eyes and a proud heart are the lamp of the wicked and are sin. That, that pride and haughtiness often go together. Pride is internal that flows up and out our eyes and causes us to look down on people. That makes us think that we are superior to them. And the psalmist denies this of himself and says, not only is my, is my heart not prideful, but my eyes are not haughty. And number three, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Again, related to pride, the psalmist is describing here what we would call arrogance. Arrogance is an exaggerated sense of one's ability, not of one's self-worth and self-esteem, but of one's actual ability. These are people that think they can do no wrong, that they can do anything. And we kind of breed this in our culture today because we tell children, you can do anything. Well, maybe they can't. <laughs> you know, I will never be able to do brain surgery and neither will you. We don't have any brain surgeons in the room. I don't think. We have a lot of doctors, but I don't think we have any brain surgeons. Neither will you. There are things we're not going to be able to do. I watch my oldest son do calculus at home and I'm like, nope. Never going to be able to do it. I don't even understand a single thing that's written in it, right? I can't do it. But arrogance is the opposite of that. It's thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm good at that, and I'm good at this, and I'm good at this other thing, and I can do any of these things. When we combine these things together, we get this person that, that thinks more of themselves than they should. They think less of others than they should, and they think more of their abilities than they should. They're prideful, they're haughty, they're arrogant. And all of these are the opposite of humility. And humility is necessary for us to be able to find true rest. Prideful, haughty, and arrogant people don't rest because their souls won't allow them to. Because they've always got to be the best. Because that's what they think of themselves. They've always got to prove their worth. They've always got to prove themselves better than someone else. They've always got to live up to their words. Once you claim you can do something, then you have to actually be able to do it. And humility allows us to rest for several reasons. Let me just give you three. First, humility helps us to recognize that the world can go on without us. I'm going to use my sabbatical as an illustration a couple of times in this sermon. This is the first one. A year ago was when we started talking about this as elders. And it was all just this big idea. But let me tell you something that has sunk into me over the last two or three weeks um, as I come to the end of my eighth year of, of being the lead pastor here and look at these next three months of, of not serving in that role. You're okay without me. You, you don't need me. Nansman River Baptist Church will go on. You need somebody to do what I do. You need somebody to 
open the word of God and explain it to you. You need someone to help keep us focused on mission and vision as a congregation. You need someone to do some of the organizational things that I do. But there are other people that can do those things. You don't need me. And this has been a reminder as I've prepared to take this time away that the world will go on, that you, this church, will go on in my absence. It's been a humbling moment for my flesh to prepare for that, to recognize that, that you're going to gather Sunday after Sunday and people are going to preach and ministry is going to take place and I will be elsewhere. Number two, humility helps us to recognize that others can do what we do, maybe even better than we can do it. Remember, arrogance says, I can do anything. Humility says, I can't do everything. And not only does humility say, I can't do everything. Humility says, the things that I can do, other people can do too. And maybe even better than me you're going to be exposed over the next three months to some of the best preachers that I know. Some of which I can guarantee you are better at doing what I do than me. And in my pride and arrogance, it, in my flesh, I could have said, well, let's fill the pulpit with people that won't be as, so that the church will want me to, I think you're, I hope you're gonna want me to come back because I'm your pastor and I, I preach here and I teach you, but you're gonna hear some great sermons. I'm not setting you up for, for like, oh, man, we can't wait for him to get back. I, I want you to hear just phenomenal exposition of God's word when we're gone. Number three, humility helps us to recognize that we don't have to try to do everything because we can't do everything. You can't do it all. You can't be all to everyone. I'll use another example from our church, not directly related to, to the next few months here. The thing, one of the things I am, I am eternally grateful for for our congregation is that we see a, a biblical example for what is known as the plurality of elders. That there's not one pastor of our church, but there are multiple pastors, some of which are employed here, some of which are not employed here, that work together to shepherd and oversee and protect the teaching of our church. That's what our elders do. And I am so grateful to be able to pastor, to be the lead pastor uh, amongst those other elders within this congregation because it means I don't have to do everything. I don't have to try to do everything. I don't have to be everywhere because I can't be. And that you can look to faithful men in our church who, who just pour themselves out for you. And then on the service side, we have, we have deacons, we have ministry team leaders, we have people that are just doing things according to the mission and vision of our church. And I don't know sometimes all of the things that they're doing, but I don't need to. just can't do it all. And, and neither can you. So my first encouragement to you is this. Humble your, if you want to find true rest in Christ, it's going to re- require for you to put aside pride, to put aside your haughtiness, to put aside your arrogance, and just humble yourself before the Lord as the psalmist demonstrates. Number two, calm and quiet is necessary for finding true rest. Calm and quiet is necessary for finding true rest. Look at verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Then he gives an illustration. Like a weaned child with its mother, a 
Like a weaned child is my soul within me. We have lots of examples of this here in our church because we have lots of children in our church. And so a weaned child is a child who is past the point of feeding directly from their mother but still finds comfort that, that is above everything else. The head on mom's shoulder. That's the picture the psalmist gives us. That picture of just true calm and quiet of a child sleeping on his mother. And the psalmist says, this is how I have sought to calm and quiet my soul. This world is neither calm nor quiet. And that's not new, by the way. Don't lament modernity, and I'm going to use some examples from modernity here in a minute, but don't lament modernity and think that life used to be calm and quiet. It never has been. Psalm 2 tells us about the world. In its opening, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. This is the mindset of the world. It rages. It has raged from the beginning. It has neither been calm nor quiet at any point in human history. Now, each stage of human history has had different areas that have led us away from calm and quiet and different ways that it leads us away from it. But it has always been something we've had to seek in the Lord because the world is always going to rage. Even Jesus does this. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is kind of at the height of his Galilean ministry. And in verse 15, Luke tells us that, that now even more of the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So lots of people pressing in on Jesus. He's at the very height of his ministry. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, verse 16 tells us. That Jesus would leave that behind, go to a desolate place, find calm and quiet. Even Jesus needed calm and quiet. So let me ask this, what keeps us from calm and quiet? Well, in a general sense, it is the world. Our flesh does keep us from it, but I want to ask it in a little bit more of a specific sense. What keeps us as 21st century Christians Americans, people of Western culture, what keeps us? And so I, I've come up with three examples. These aren't the only three. You may come up to me after and say, what about this? You're probably right. But these are three that I see. Number one is our constant need for connection. This is known as the fear of missing out. When I teach our teenagers, I did last summer for quite a while when we were in a transition period of leadership in our student ministry, and then I taught them again for their disciple now uh, a, a month, or, month or so ago. And when I teach our teenagers, I always make them use paper Bibles, like an actual book, Bible, like the one that's in the pew in front of you that you could open to Psalm 31 if you would like to. Um, and, and here's the reason that I do that, not because I actually think that the paper Bible is somehow more holy or spiritual than a Bible app on your phone. It's not. It's the words are what is meaningful to us. Um, but it's because our phones, and if you're on your phone here, hear this in love, uh, our, our, 
when, when we use our Bible on our phone, we are at least exposing ourselves to the opportunity for great distraction. The average person during waking hours gets one message on their phone, either a text message or a push notification from one of the hundreds of apps that you have on your phone. You, you get a message every seven minutes on average during the 16 hours that you're awake, which means that if you're using your phone right now in the time that I've been preaching, you've gotten three messages, all of which have tempted to draw your minds away from what the Lord is saying in his word to what Candy Crush wants you to do or the clickbait headline that Fox News wants you to click on, or the person asking, where are we eating after this is over? Okay, all of these things just add up to distraction because we have this constant need for connection. And, and now we have this little thing in our pocket that gives us the ability to be connected all the time, globally, all the time. We can know everything that's going on and, and it, and it feeds this worldly need for us. Number two, our constant need for entertainment. We are not very good at being bored. We're just not. And by the way, this isn't children. The ch children in the ring. You're not very good at being bored, but it's okay. Neither are your parents. <laughs> All those apps on your parents' phone, they're not for you. They play them too. Because we just can't be bored. We have to have the TV on. We have to be playing a game. We have to check our farm bill. I don't play farm bill, but we, I don't know. I don't even know what you do. Like you're pretending to farm, like whatever. But we, we've got to always be doing something because we just can't be bored. We can't just sit, be quiet. With this constant need for entertainment. Researchers tell us that the same chemicals are released in our brains when we play the games on our phones as when people do drugs. They're designed that way, by the way, to keep you coming back. So you'll watch those ads, right? And buy those 99 cent turnips or whatever it is you're buying. There's just this constant need to be entertained instead of being able to just sit. Number three, our constant need, I'm on metal here, our constant need for validation, to be told that we're doing good, to have other people see how good our children are doing or how good we are at work or how good we are even at school there, or, or, or in sports or, or, hold on, even at church, that, that we, we won't take a step towards rest because we need people to see us and validate us. Listen, I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. I don't do a lot of these things often, but I, I, so how I stay in touch with people sometimes. But these things inherently have some danger to them because we end up presenting a version of ourselves on one or more of these platforms for the purpose of validation. It's not, tr it's not really who we are. It's our social media persona so that other people will, there's a reason every one of these has the ability to heart something, right? Because that's what we desire, that's what our flesh desires, to be validated. Listen. These are just three. There are, there are likely other examples. But here, here's what I want you to see. 
the world, as we saw in Psalm 2, the, 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 the nations are always going to rage. They're going to always be these things pulling at us. And we need to recognize when we're giving into the pull. Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you ha- may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. And tribulation doesn't always mean persecution. It just means you will you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Whatever it is that in your flesh draws you away from rest in Jesus, Jesus has overcome that thing. So you can give it to him. You can take extraordinary steps towards rest in Christ by recognizing that Christ has overcome that barrier to your rest in him as you calm and quiet your soul. Number three, trust in the Lord is necessary for finding true rest. The third thing, trust in the Lord. He writes in verse three, O Israel, read it like this, O people of God, hope in the Lord. And not just on Sundays, not just on the ascent, if you use the Old Testament, not just on the ascent into Jerusalem when they would recite these things as pilgrims together, from this time forth. And forevermore, here's what the psalmist says, put your hope in the Lord now and forever. And as New Testament people, our hope in the Lord means that we are trusting in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, what, soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest because he alone is our true source for rest. He alone. Remember, the nation's rage, our flesh rises up within us, but we can look to Jesus and answer his invitation to come to him and find rest. And I read this whole prayer because I wanted you to see that, that this is not going to be the way that the world tells us to find rest. He actually thanks the Father here. He says, I, I'm thankful for you in the way that you've revealed this thing. That you've not revealed it to the wise and the understanding, but you've revealed it to little children. You've revealed it to simple. That's the way that he referred often to his disciples as little children. That the world is going to give us all of these other programs and all of these other things that actually just fill up our time. When truly what our soul longs for is Jesus. It's finding rest in him. And since the beginning of time, God had established a principle of rest. God establishes in his own creation the seventh day, rest. And he establishes in the garden 
rest for Adam and Eve. And he establishes in the Ten Commandments rest for his people on the seventh day. Jesus comes to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus comes to fulfill all of that. And then the writer of Hebrews shows us what that means for Sabbath rest. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So does that mean that we should have taken yesterday off because Saturday is the Sabbath? Hold on, listen to him. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Where is our rest? Our rest is in the person of Jesus and in the truth of his word. This is where you find rest. Let's just start with the first one, in the person of Jesus. If you have not put your faith in Christ for the remission of your sin, your flesh still rages like the nation's. Because you are always, whether you are conscious about it or not, you are always going to be able to, you're always going to be living in such a way that seeks to please God. You're going to be trying to earn your way, doing good on your own. But when we come to Christ, we recognize that he has done good for us in our place, taking the punishment for our sin and giving to us his righteousness. And in this, we can then come into him and find rest This is why he tells the Pharisees that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that we don't find our rest in a day. We find our rest in a person, Jesus. Rest in Jesus and in his word. This is why the writer of Hebrews combines these ideas. This is why he talks about finding rest in Jesus with then the, the truth of God's word, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword because we find rest in knowing that God has spoken and that what he has said is true and that then we can find faith and obedience through it. This is why Solomon in the beginning of the book of Proverbs instructs his son, says, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. That's the world. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. God's wisdom, his word, while at times difficult for us to embrace because of our flesh that rebels against it, leads to a life, as, the, as, as, the, as Solomon writes, without dread of disaster because through his wisdom we understand that the only real disaster that we could ever face is being outside of Christ. And we can't be outside of Christ if we're in Christ because Christ has made us new in him and given us new life in him. So there's the, the nations can rage around us and Christians just like, I'm not worried about it. Christians, what great news is this? That while the world rages around us and all seems to be in chaos and despair, we can have real rest that we can be Jesus sleeping on the boat while the storm rages on the Sea of Galilee. 
Why was Jesus able to do that and the disciples weren't? Because Jesus knew who was truly in control. He trusted in God and his plan. And we can too. So what? Our soul longs for the rest that is only found in faith and obedience to Christ. There are two sides of this, as you've already seen. There's faith and there's obedience. You can have faith, but because of your disobedience, not be in rest. And this is why Barney was right, that for a Christian to not rest is sin. And so if you are not finding rest in Christ, you may still be in faith in him, but it may be because of some disobedience in your life. And I promise you, your soul needs it. Your soul needs you to slow down. Your soul needs you to find quiet. Your soul needs you to find calm. Your soul needs you to find humility so that you can find true, meaningful, real rest in the person of Jesus, in his sacrifice for you on the cross, and then in your obedience to him as your Lord. Jeremiah chapter 31 was written to Israel in a time of turmoil. And later in chapter 31, it's probably the most famous passage of Jeremiah 31, where, God, where, where Jeremiah says that God is a, going to establish a new covenant, right? And we look to that and recognize the new covenant is in Jesus. But before he talks about the new covenant, he says this, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more, they shall use the words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitants of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. Listen, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. How does God fulfill this promise to Israel? He fulfills this promise to Israel by sending his one and only son to do what Israel was never able to do, to perfectly keep the law of God, sacrificing himself on the cross willingly, being vindicated and validated, those words we used last week, by God, by resurrecting him from the dead so that we could be in him and obedient to him. This is where real, meaningful rest is found. Listen. I'm going to bring it back to the next few months for our church. I'm not taking this sabbatical because my soul is weary. You say, wait, pastor, we all have weary souls. We do. If I need time away from here to rest my weary soul, then I'm not applying what I've just preached to you. You can go to work this week and next week and next month and the next year and be busy and still find rest in faith and obedience in Christ as long as you'll do so in humility and finding moments for calm and quiet. But I am tired. And graciously, as a congregation, you've offered me the opportunity to find some time to rest and to do that in Christ and to do that alongside of my family and and, and to do that in, in ways that are going to be meaningful, not just for me, but for us. And then to be able to come back here and pastor you again, Lord willing, because I long for that. 
I look forward to that, and I'm glad that date is on the calendar. But hear me, church. You, you may never get an extended period in your work life until you retire to be able to do that. And by the way, some of our retired people in here are some of those busy people there are. You need to rest too, by the way. Retired people. I'm not just talking about work. You know, and This isn't a sermon just for young people. It's for all of us. So, so the application of this isn't take time off of work. That may be an extension of the application. Stop seeking the validity of your boss or your owner or whoever it is. Like the, the, there, is there is some extension of the application. But the application is clear. That your soul and mine long for a rest that cannot be found in vacation. It cannot be found in travel. It cannot be found in sleeping late. It cannot be found in putting your feet up in your lazy boy and doing nothing all day. It can be found only in Christ and obedience to him while the nations rage around us and our flesh still seeks to lead us astray, Christ invites us to come and to find rest for our weary souls in him alone. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are thankful to you today for Jesus, our Sabbath, our rest, that we don't have to wait for a day but that every day of our lives, we can rest in the seventh day of Jesus, our eternal rest, now and forevermore. And we're grateful to you, God, for the instruction of your word that helps us to evaluate ourselves and to rid ourselves of sin, to dedicate ourselves to Christ. I pray that this place, these people, We'll find rest and encouragement of one another. We thank you, God, for allowing me to be their pastor. God, would you bless us now as we sing to you together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, will you stand with us as we sing?